All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Kente Corner. I'm your host, Bobby Bancroft, and today we have a very special edition. Patrick Stevens is returning. Patrick, as you know, is a Washington Post contributor, among other spots, with college basketball. We're going to talk bubble, and for the first time ever, we're going to go lacrosse, but we're going to start with our main sport. We're going to start with basketball. But let's start first, Patrick. How are you doing? Oh, I'm uh, resting up for this two-week sprint, basically. Uh, From here until Selection Sunday is always one of the busiest times of the year. I'm hoping to feel as much sleep as I can now uh, while making the the push forward. But I will not be sleeping over the next half hour or so as we talk, I promise you. So there won't be any nodding off or anything like that. Yeah, no, that's uh, perfect. Like I said, in a in a normal world, we would have probably seen each other who knows how many times in the past couple of months, but we are not in a normal world. But luckily, we can talk, and I want to thank you for coming back on the pod. I should let everyone know to follow you on Twitter if they're not already doing so. It's a discourse, and it's a one instead of the I. So, Patrick, Georgetown, by all accounts, is having a better season than most predicted. The Hoyas are... 8 and 11. They are 6 and 8 in the conference and they're 4 and 3 since they restarted after their COVID pause. They were picked last by the Big East coaches. Um, I'm not going to lie myself. If they had a 25 game season, which I would have bet against by the way and they're not going to, I had them pegged for I think 8 and 17 and 5 and 15 in the conference. So They've showed me that I was wrong. They've showed the Big East coaches that they were wrong. That being said, they are not on the bubble. But I had kind of a bigger picture question. This was talked about on the last pod of Kente Corner after the win over... DePaul? Yeah, sorry. Yes, after the win over DePaul. But anyway, so, you know, last year, they were down to a couple guys at the end of the season, down to six or seven, but they ended up losing them to graduation. Uh, this year, you know, it's another transition year for the Hoyas. Like I said, they've done better than people expected. But of the six players that are averaging double-figure minutes, they're set to lose four of them. But as we know, in college basketball this year, they could all come back. One of them could come back, three, whatever, any sort of combination, okay? I don't need to keep saying the numbers. Sort of the question I had and we were trying to figure out is, is that the idea that, you know, they're still a team that kind of – the roster is different every year and they're kind of learning how to play with each other, but then they lose a lot of the guys. Is that kind of a college basketball problem or is it kind of a specific, maybe it's a little bit of Georgetown's current situation? It's probably a bit of both. I mean, in, in, a, in a perfect world right now, you would think that, you know, if, if things had gone well over the previous two years, you would be looking at a junior class core of a Kinjo and McClung and LeBlanc, and, and everything else would be kind of filled in around that, right? I mean, you probably wouldn't have needed to add two, more than one grad transfer in all yeah. likelihood after last season. That's probably the max. Um, you know, I think Wahab would still be playing a pretty big role for this team. Javon Blair would probably be a gunner off the bench, or he might have transferred. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Pickett's probably a, a, a secondary player, complementary player, or he's gone. I mean, it, it, we we're basically getting into, you know, a, a sense of both of the things that you brought up, that uh, there's a lot of transferring in college basketball in the present day. And I think 
when you when you look at how Georgetown tried to go about building its roster, it clearly had a group that it hoped to build around over the long haul. Now, the long haul isn't what it was 30 years ago, and it probably wasn't going to be four years. But the thought I, I have to believe was, was that they would get three seasons out of that core group uh, and that the last two that they could be pretty good. I mean, I think going into last season, it was not unreasonable to think that team was capable of going from being a three seed in the NIT to being, you know, at least a borderline NCAA tournament team, if not a, a mid-bracket team if things went well, with the thought that they'd be even better this year. And it didn't work out. And so you have holes in the roster. In Georgetown's case, there's a lot of holes in the roster, you know, 12, 14, 15 months ago. And you've got to figure out a way to solve those problems quickly. Uh, at that point, you're probably not going to have a ton of great freshmen to choose from. Uh, a lot of those, either the, the really high-end guys might not be signed, but a lot of those, you know, 25 to 100 or so guys uh, are, are probably already signed by that. So, you know, you can find good guards in different places. Like, there's guys that blossom even if they're not necessarily well-regarded. But generally speaking, you don't want to be rummaging around the big man bargain bin in April and May looking for help for the following season. So the thing that you want if you're Georgetown is, is essentially you would hope that the class that you bring in the next year after some of that roster tumult would be good enough or big enough or both that you basically only have to do one set of band-aids uh, as opposed to maybe two or three or you find yourself in a cycle of that. So if you're Georgetown, you hope that you can stop that bleeding certainly by the time you get to next season. Uh, but you know, all it takes is one or two guys to leave early again and you've got the problem to deal with all over. Yeah, and that and that's where I think that it's not necessarily a Georgetown specific problem. And that you know, guys do leave. We might have another year of not sitting out if you transfer, which is going to be more attractive. The idea of transferring was even you know going in the portal is going to be even more of a feasible option if you don't think you're going to have to sit. Like I said, the season's been good as far as what they had to do, but at some point you do want to get away from the late signings, the you know the grad transfers and all that stuff to toss in here. You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with, with having one grad transfer a year where yeah. you size up your roster. You say, I need to go get this for my team. I need to go get a three point shooter. I need to go get a backup point guard. I need to go get a guy that can provide five fouls and a little bit of rebounding in the post. It's when you have multiple holes that that sort of thing starts to become a problem and your lack of continuity becomes a little more obvious. Patrick, the last player that you just described, the first part of it sounded like me. Go five fouls. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm a little bit better than that. But yes, no, I couldn't help it. I, I just want to get that in. So anyway, a couple weeks ago, two weeks ago, I, I guess, Georgetown played a little bit of a spoiler role against Seton Hall, and they get a chance this week against Xavier. So let me go real quick. Obviously, Georgetown's been playing better. They are not on the bubble. The season's not going to last long enough for them to get on the bubble. We can agree on that. It looks like the Big East has two locks, Villanova and Creighton. And then there's three teams, Connecticut, Seton Hall, and Xavier, that are kind of you know in that last four in to first four out group, plus or minus a couple teams either way. Is that about right? And how big of a 
of a hit to Xavier's resume the Hoyas do on Tuesday night? Well, it's interesting because there's there are three such interesting teams. There, there's something different about each of those three teams, Xavier, UConn, and, and Seton Hall, that makes them stand out, not just relative to each other, but relative to all those teams that are close to the edge of the field. We'll start with Xavier. Um, you know, Xavier has a victory over Oklahoma from earlier in the season. It's really good. And they really, really needed that Creighton win. Uh, they played one game in a span of a little more than a month in January into February. And as a result of their uh, time off and Villanova's time off, they're not playing Villanova at all in the regular season. So they, they needed to go find something good. Uh, and, and I think because you're talking about a, a situation where they're going to probably wind up playing 20 games, 21, 22, something like that, that they're more, they, they basically probably don't need to come up with quite as much to demonstrate that they're good. Uh, and I think that beating Creighton the other night effectively handled that. Now, all the, what do they have to do? Well, don't lose to Georgetown and Marquette. I, I think Xavier. <laughs> I, I I think Xavier could afford to trip up once this week and still be in solid shape. But they, they'd be wise not to trip up twice. So they have a lot to play for uh, as they head to McDonough Arena come uh, come Tuesday night. Uh, That's so, very nice of you to say, by the way, Arena. You like that? Well, you know, it says gymnasium out front. You know, it's like well, what, I mean, the sign. Like? I mean, the sign, of course, is probably from you know the Eisenhower administration. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. That's okay. I mean, I got to make a joke. That's wonderful. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, Georgetown could certainly do a little bit of damage, but I think it's going to take a. I think it's going to take a tandem effort here. Uh, to derail the Musketeers as they as they make the push towards the postseason. UConn is interesting for a very obvious reason, which is that they're the team more than anybody else that is basically banking on player availability being an important component to their evaluation. That when you look at them with James Booknight and without him, they are clearly a very different team. Uh, you know, they've got back here, I think, what is it, they're three and one, I think, since he got back. It sounds about right. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're three and one. And, and he played, and even when they, you know, even when they lost, they lost at Villanova. He scores 21 against probably the best team in the league. Uh, he scored 20 in three, three games in a row. I think if you are realistically evaluating UConn, if he is available, and if they handle business this week with at least a split and then don't do anything silly in the Big East tournament, that UConn probably gets in. This is a year I feel like there's going to be a couple teams that with the lack of information compared to what you'd normally have, that there's going to be a few teams that get in on, on good faith. And that's not how it should work, but nothing's really working the way it should work right now. So UConn's one of those teams. I think St. Louis is one of those teams. Uh, they just hammered Massachusetts tonight. And you, you look at them and you go, well, there's a lot of really good pieces here. And they also missed five weeks in the middle of the season. What do you make of that? Uh, so I, I think UConn's kind of in that group too, spe- really specific to one player more so than the entire team. Uh, 
And then you mentioned Seton Hall, which, like you said, did not help itself by by losing to Georgetown a couple weekends ago. It lost to Butler last week. It has it has some silly losses. Losing to Providence at home probably wasn't a great idea. But you size it up. This is also a team that's won six road games this season. They've won at UConn, granted without book night. They've won at Xavier. They've won at Penn State, which is actually a moderately useful victory. They've won at Providence. Uh, and so if you're Seton Hall, it, it would help you to pick off Connecticut again, get the sweep, have that as kind of a comparison uh, to a team that's in a similar spot to you, and then hope that you don't hope that you don't trip up against St. John's. I think Seton Hall is in the weakest position of all three of those teams, but that road record is going to help them out. Uh, they obviously went 0 and 4 against Villanova and Creighton, but they've played pretty well otherwise. I mean, even when you start looking at the losses, six points on the road to Georgetown. Three-point home overtime loss to Providence. I mean, they they played reasonably well. They probably wish they could have that Louisville game back at the start of the season when they lost by a point. But uh, they have the most work to do out of the three teams that we've talked about here. Uh, But they do have some assets going for them as they enter the final week of the regular season. So basically, to sum it up from the Georgetown angle, they've done the, the most late damage to Seton Hall, who they won't play again, at least in the regular season. And from the Hoyas... They probably can't knock off Connecticut or Xavier by themselves. It might take another loss or a poor performance in in the Big East tournament. Is that kind of right? Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair assessment of that. And I mean, I think too, uh, you know, who can they do more damage to? Well, they can probably do more damage, probably do more damage to uh, to Connecticut just because that's a road game. Connecticut losing to Georgetown would hurt the Huskies more than Xavier losing to Georgetown would hurt the Musketeers. And then, you know, I know that you follow all of college basketball. That's part of the job when you have to come up with one of the almost perfect or maybe perfect brackets that you do every year. I thought it was interesting. I haven't been paying attention to UConn. And obviously they go from Calhoun to Kevin Ollie to uh, Dan Hurley. But they're kind of following the same recipe that we saw Calhoun win in 11. We saw Kevin Ollie, you know, whatever you want to say, win with Calhoun's players or whatever in 14. And then now with, you know, with the really strong guard play of, of book night and someone that was near and dear to our hearts at Howard, RJ Cole. I mean, that's, that's just what UConn does, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, they've got a really good guard legacy Uh, and really you, you look at, you look at what they have. I mean, it's a, it's a nice, it's a nice blend. I mean, book nights, obviously, uh, the guy that that's going to follow in the in the Kemble Walker Shabazz Napier mold of of that lead guard. I'm not yeah. saying that he's going to win him a championship or anything. Right, but right. That type of guy, R.J. Cole, is is a guy between his time at St. Anthony High in in New Jersey and and then Howard, a, a guy that's a perfectly functional high end guard. Uh, and then you've got some you know some veteran pieces. Guys like Whaley and Tyler Polly, and, and don't forget Tyrese Martin, the, the Rhode Island transfer who Hurley was familiar with, uh, who has really done a nice job uh, for them this season as well. So, you know, yeah. UConn, it's, it, you know, it's funny you say, you know, we kind of lost track of them. Well, yeah, I mean, they were busy playing East Carolina on Thursday nights for the last several years. Hey, I mean, there, really, the there, really wasn't, there really wasn't much reason to pay attention to them. I've, I've got some friends in Greenville that own a bar. And Pirates with a top five win this year, but I know they do. 
I know what I know what you're the last, the last time that they beat the last time that they beat a ranked team before then or the last time they beat a team that highly ranked before then were they in the CAA Dwayne, Dwayne, no it was Dwayne Wade and Marquette oh okay they're part of the CAA that I remember the CAA that I grew up going to youth Cla- sports the classic, the-, C- the classic CAA where they were they were the partner with UNC Wilmington down there yeah, when uh, Bobby and his little, you know, fifth grade BROIC basketball team was going to the Patriot Center, their East Carolina was flying their their flag proudly in that <laughs> arena at that time. So the NIT came out today with a statement that they've they're going to shrink the field from 32 to 16. This is bad news for my JNU Dukes as there's going to be no automatic qualifiers. Um, the, the biggest reason I want to bring this up, well, too, I mean, I guess if Georgetown went on a run, it's possible they could be an NIT team, but they'd probably have to, I don't know, go to the Big East final for that. But I do want to bring this up because I like oddities, and I think you might too. They're bringing back the third place game, and the last time they had a third place game, this will be the second episode in a row in Kente Corner, talking about the 2003 Georgetown team that was a runner-up to St. John's. That was the last year they had the third place game. Do you think that's a good thing? Do you think playing the NIT is a good thing? Do you have any NIT comments? Uh, you, you know, it's funny. You are the second person to ask me an involved question about the NIT in the last <laughs> three hours. Um, it, you know, I mean, there, there's so many things that we could sit here and, like, dive into about this. And the, one of the yeah. questions I got earlier, I'm going to answer your question at, at some point during this rambling response. But Sorry. one of the questions was, you like, like, how, how how late can teams like withdraw from the NIT or say that we don't want to go or something like that? And I'm going to assume like it, it's it's only logical to assume right now that everybody's the NCAA is not going to hold it against anybody for not playing in the NIT, but they're going to be like guys, could you let us know by Sunday this Sunday whether we you know we by selection Sunday I mean. Uh, can you just let us know whether you you want to do it or not, so that we don't have to re- juggle this stuff a whole bunch? Um, so <laughs> you, you got to fig- you got to figure that the top sixteen teams outside the tournament are not all going to want to play in this event. Which is what that that's going to help Georgetown. It, well, I don't know if they're going to take teams with losing records. This isn't the CBI, you know. Yeah, but um, I, you know what I would say about that though. In a normal year. If you're six and eight in the Big East, that kind of has you right on the NIT radar, right? Well, unlike unlike what we've seen in the Big East <laughs> since it was reconstituted, yeah, um, you know, not every six and eight is equal. Sure. Um, so I don't want to get into conference records and whatnot because just about nobody other than the Missouri Valley is getting in all of its games. That's one of the great accomplishments of this season is that any league that gets every single game in like the Missouri Valley did deserves some sort of medal. Well, uh, re- real quick, I will say this, and we don't have to talk about it. Georgetown's strength of schedule in the Big East is actually really good because they played both of their sets of games against Villanova and Creighton going one and three. That's fair. And and they'll get both games in against UConn as well. Yeah, presumably. so they actually have a decent – if you you know, if someone wanted to be crazy enough to dig into the, you know, the um, opponent's winning percentage to, to come up with some sort of weird tiebreaker, Georgetown's actually in a pretty good spot. They, uh, according to this, they're sitting there at second in conference strength of schedule. Marquette's See, the only one. Okay. That's according to, that's according to Ken Pop. So okay. your question of whether it's a good idea to have an NIT, whether it's a good idea to 
have an NIT third place game. I, I mean, love that part. Yeah, I mean, look, why are they playing in NIT? Well, I mean, there's television inventory, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, the NCAA runs it, so why not provide those? It's not going to be 31 games this year. It's going to be 16 instead. So, look, if, if you've got teams that want to play in it, why not? If you have a team, and, and this is an example, NC State, uh, which has a bunch of freshmen and has a sophomore in Manny Bates, guys that haven't played in the postseason together, guys that they probably feel like they can build around and make run next year. Uh, they're playing well. They've won four in a row at this point, and they finish with – Notre Dame and Virginia Tech. Like, if they can pick off those games and, and maybe win a game in the ACC tournament, so they're playing well and they're young and they've got a group that's going to be together, that's a team that probably would kind of want to go play in an event like that. So, you know, if you can find 16 teams like that and they want to do it, I mean, look, look, we, we can sit here and debate the merits of, of the wisdom of doing anything right now. But – if you're going to do it, that would be the sort of team that you would hope would get the opportunity to do it. And if you're going to the trouble to have the event, why not have the third place game? Why, why don't we just have like everybody plays four games while they're there? Let's have a 15th place. Well, I don't hate where you're going with this idea. I'll say this. I think that when you go to the final four, why not stick around and play another game? Now, obviously it's terrible to go to the final four and come away with two losses. Like no one wants to be that team. You know, like if you lose a national championship game, that's awful enough, but you know, you could say you're the runner up. Okay. Mm-hmm. But you go to the third place game. It sounds great until you lose. Right. Yeah. At least in the Olympics, there's a medal at stake. Like you're playing for something there in that third place game, but in, a, in an NIT or NCAA tournament. Yeah. You're that's, that's, that's one of those, Ultimate, you go from playing for a championship to you're playing in some horrible mid-tier bowl game in an empty stadium. In uh, uh, an empty stadium in a normal year, not just in the current year. Um, you know, that's, it's one of those, you know, you're trying to guess who actually wants to be here, who wants to try. Uh, that, is the, that is the can of worms that opens up when you do have one of those games. Yeah, you, you go from being in the Final Four – to being the only team in the tournament to leave on a losing streak. That's one way of putting it. (laughs) So Patrick, I'm not a lacrosse guy. I've had some soccer talk on here and I'm going to transition it that way. The last couple of years, well, shoot, it seems like a couple of years. It's been about 10 years now, actually. If you go back to the Georgetown men's soccer team made the final four, I've made the online tweet a few times. Georgetown's a soccer school. Uh, both the men and the women's soccer programs have been to some Final Fours. The men just won it all. I couldn't help but notice, and I've got people coming at me that are wanting lacrosse talk, and who else to talk lacrosse than you? It looks like to me, I might need to change my tweet from soccer school to lacrosse school, and you can tell me where I'm wrong, or you can tell me how high the expectations should be. But right now, the Hoyas are ranked fourth in the country. I do not know how good Villanova and St. John's are. But I do know that Georgetown beat Villanova 16 to 1 on the road. Then they beat St. John's 19 to 1 at home. That's 35 to 2. And I know that Georgetown's all time leading scorer is now on the team, Jake Caraway. You can tell me if I'm saying that wrong. Um, Caraway. Caraway. I knew it. I knew I would say it wrong. I know that you do a lot of work for US Lacrosse Magazine. People can find your work there. Tell me everything I need to know right now about the Hoya Men Lacrosse team. Well, well, they've got one of the longest winning streaks in the country, uh, eight 
going back to the start of last season, they were 6-0 and against a fairly manageable schedule uh, when the pandemic hit and ended things. Uh, they're playing a mostly Big East schedule this year. They've got a they've got actually a non-conference game Tuesday up at Mount St. Mary's, and and then they've got another one set for the end of the season. Uh, sort of got an asterisk next to it for for multiple reasons. They, they've got their local rival against rivalry against Loyola uh, up in Baltimore. Um, Patrick, real quick, can you tell the people the furthest? conference game they have i think people would be interested to know this i knew this well well um in a couple weeks they'll play denver (laughs) a associate member of big east in lacrosse i mean there's you look at it st john's villanova marquette georgetown uh and uh providence that's five you need six for an automatic bid uh and denver is available and is actually good um, so those Georgetown and Denver are, are the two best teams in the league. Like you said, Jake Carraway, uh, set the school record, uh, for career goals the other day against, against St. John's passes his old teammate, Daniel Bucaro, who, uh, he was teammates with when they, when they made the NCAA tournament in both 18 and 19 as the big East champions. Um, let's put it this way. There, first of all, Villanova historically is, Pretty good, like a consistent bottom of the top twenty type of team out of out of seventy to seventy five schools that that play Division One lacrosse this year. This year, the magic number is because the Ivy League's out. There's going to be about sixty six teams playing, but there are currently seventy four active Division One programs. Uh, and Villanova has a has kind of a funky offense. It's a motion offense, uh, really difficult to prepare for. So when Georgetown went up there and held them to a goal, that that stood out a little bit. Uh, And then Villanova responded this past weekend by going to Marquette and winning 16 to 14. So that was was more along the lines of what I would have expected from Villanova. So St. John's has has struggled a fair bit uh, in the various iterations of the Big East. Uh, but they're two weeks removed from beating Hofstra 19 to 18. So for them to only score one goal against Georgetown, when its best defenseman Gibson Smith was, was out with it, with an injury, um, that kind of says something too. So you know, you look at Georgetown. We talked about Caraway. They've got a lot of pieces on the offensive end. You know, they've got Nikki Pekovic. Colgate transfer that's got a goal and two assists, uh, you know, a, a number of guys that I think are going to really help them out. Graham Bundy Jr. in the midfield has a couple goals early on in the season. Uh, they're starting a couple freshmen, including Dylan Hess. Uh, at the other end of the field, uh, like we talked about, the defense is really good, and, and, and the goalie, Owen McElroy, led the country in save percentage and goals against average uh, last season. So, and it's safe to say I haven't looked it up, but I'm going to guess a 1.2 goals against average and an 8.57 save percentage will will probably be at the top of the country right now as well. Usually that goals against average leader is in the six, seven, eight per 60 minutes, yeah. um, and the save percent and the save percentage leader is probably a little north of 60 percent in a full season. So, and then you know what. In, in, in lacrosse, possession 
is uh, is a big deal, just simply getting the ball. And uh, I'm just looking at this, and I'm actually looking at stats that have not been updated on Georgetown's site, which does not help. But James Riley's really, really good. And he, he had a great season last year. He was around uh, 68%, 69%, I believe. Uh, and so they have pieces all over the place. And they're in a league where they, they really ought to end up, I would say, especially given that they've already got two in the bank already, in a 10-game in a league season. I think there's a good chance that they end up 9-1, 8-2, something like that. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's a team that, that has a chance to uh, be a very interesting factor deep into May. Uh, you know, Georgetown has a single Final Four appearance back under former coach Dave Yurick, uh, and they got to the point in the early 2000s into the into the mid aughts where they just kept losing in the quarterfinals. I mean, they were consistently one of the five to eight best teams in the country, but not one of the top four. Uh, and I think this is a team that can get back and win an NCAA tournament game and at least get to the quarterfinals for the first time since 2007, uh, and quite possibly, uh, if things go right, maybe even do a little bit more, just kind of looking at the at the talent that they have and, and the experience that they have on this roster. There's a, there's a lot to like there. So 2007, so that was a big deal in basketball and lacrosse, apparently. Well, that was the tail end of something. They, they had something along the lines of five consecutive quarterfinal losses. Um, it, I mean, it felt like every year. And I might, I might be blanking on something here. They might have lost that game, game in 2007. The bottom line is that they, yeah, they, they, yeah, they lost a quarterfinal in 2007. The, the, the bottom line for them is that they, uh, you know, they made the tournament every year from '97 to 2007. Yurik, as the background history, was hired away from Hobart, where he had won 10 consecutive Division III championships and was basically tasked with building up a, a lacrosse program that had existed, and that was probably the best way to describe it. It, it was there. It really hadn't done anything. There hadn't been a huge commitment. Uh, and so it took a while, and it took some investment by the school. But by the time they got to the late 90s, things were starting to cook a bit. And they were a really good, solid top 10 program with the Final Four in there for 11 years. And then things just kind of faded a bit. Uh, and it took a little bit of time. Uh, new coach came in, Kevin Warren, who's, who's there now. And it took a little time to kind of sort things out as a first-time head coach. But he has, uh, has a really good staff uh, and has really targeted guys that kind of fit the way that they want to play. And, and you know, a, there's a a lot that's made in a lot of sports. Sometimes it's overblown on culture, uh, but Georgetown's done a really, really good job on that front here over the last three or four years now. Four years, really, because of the two two Big Easts, the six and zero last year, and this. So they're they're in a good spot. Uh, they're in a good spot, and uh, there's certainly a there's certainly a program that, that has a chance to have a breakthrough moment this season. And, and not, not not to not to knock winning a couple of Big East tournaments in a row in 18 and 19, but you, you want to build on that and, and, and building on that would mean being able to do something even deeper into May than they already did the last two times they were there. So it's obviously early, but this has to be a hope, right? Like if you're a Georgetown fan and I've had fans, you know, asking me to talk about lacrosse and, you know, the program is really good right now. I'm looking at the top 10 or I guess I'm looking at the top, it's a top 20, like the old, 
basketball poll was, I think, until about 90 or so. They're number four now. That could obviously switch. But is this a team? How far out of teams would I have to get to for you to say they're in the mix of the final four? Are they one of like 10 teams? Are they one of 20 teams? Is it too early to talk about that? I just want to get a gauge of of sort of like what the expectations should be. One, one of the things that's happened in this particular year is you had a lot of grad transfers leaving the Ivy League, guys that couldn't get an extra year of eligibility in the Ivy League just because of the way the rules work in that conference. And they scattered to a lot of different places. A guy from Yale, Jackson Morrill, went to Denver. A guy from Princeton, Michael Sowers, went to Duke. Uh, had, and there's a bunch of other guys, but those, those are a couple of the, of the really big. And so then you had you know, this year's Ivy League basically shut down. Uh, and not have a season. So you have probably a few teams that, that stocked up on transfers and are, you know, I don't want to, you know, super team is the is the, the phrase some people in the sport are using. I would say that the teams in the ACC in particular, uh, Syracuse, Carolina, Duke, Virginia, Notre Dame, uh, and, and the top teams in the Big Ten, Maryland, Rutgers has gotten off to a great start. They got a transfer from Villanova named Connor Kirst, it's made a, a huge impact for them in their first two games. Uh, and I would include Ohio State and Penn State as, as dangerous teams there. Johns Hopkins has a new coach. Uh, they didn't get much of a fall in. It, it's kind of a, a team that should get better as the year goes along, but not, isn't necessarily a, a team likely to make a deep run in this particular season. So, so that group plus Denver plus Georgetown plus, I don't know, maybe Loyola. Um, I mean, I think that's kind of the group. And, and Army, I think Army's got some good pieces. They've already gone to Syracuse and won by seven, which was a really impressive showing. So I guess I probably got us down to about 12 teams yeah. at that point. About okay. 12. So I, I, if we're sitting there trying to come up with, with likely final four teams, I, I, I think I pro- you probably have it covered with, with that group of 12. Um, I'm trying to think if there's somebody I, I brazenly miss out of that group. Um, I'm looking at the top 20. I see Lehigh in here. I see UMass. I see Richmond, Navy, Albany, High Point, Hofstra. Yeah, I would say, you know, UMass has been stuck in a COVID situation where their campus got shut down for two weeks, and then they had a positive test. And so that, that's a team that, that deserves some sympathy, regardless of whether you have any interest in lacrosse or not. Um, so... You know, Lehigh is a team that, that does have some really good fifth-year players. I'll be curious to see what they do this weekend against Loyola. Uh, but, but I feel like that that 12 that I kind of named off there, that's probably that's probably the group that you would expect uh, to see not just the semifinalists come from, but a good majority of the quarterfinalists as well. Now, I see division – this is a – so I don't know. This is inside lacrosse. I don't know. There obviously there's an AP poll. Says Division One media poll. Not to put you on the spot, but do you vote in this poll? No, I don't. I used to. Um, okay. What I do, Lacrosse Magazine has me come up with the rankings that they use. Oh, nice. So, that that, that sounds that sounds even better than this. So it's a set. You know, I, I, it <laughs> is not technically a poll. It is just it is just what I happen to think based on the results to date. So. I have and Georgetown then, fourth. I have Georgetown fourth in that this week. And then just so everyone, you know, that's listening, 
how often do you contribute? Is it like a weekly thing or are you doing more than that? Yeah, I've, the rankings, um, it's, I think it's going to be about one game a week. Obviously, probably not traveling. It used to be traveling up to Philly or down to Charlottesville. I don't know if I'm going to be leaving the uh, the Baltimore-Washington area a whole lot this season, but also some midweek stuff as well. I had something in there last Friday, I think it ran, uh, on Georgetown and just about the defense and, and, and whatnot. Talked to both Gibson Smith and Kevin Warren for that. So, you know, it's it's technically like a weekly notebook, but it, it they've taken a fondness for just splitting it, splitting each of the notes up and spreading them out through the week. So you can probably see a fair bit of stuff throughout the week at U.S. Lacrosse Magazine. Okay. And then, you know, from where I grew up, and I'm still in the Fairfax area, lacrosse was always a big thing. I never played, but, you know, I had a lot of friends that did and, you know, guys wearing lacrosse hats. And I've always thought it was such an interesting sport in that schools like Johns Hopkins, uh, Hobart, it just seemed like it was kind of the sport where you didn't have to be Alabama, Ohio State, you know, Georgia to be in the mix. I always thought that was kind of interesting. In my head, the Final Four every year is Memorial Day weekend in Baltimore. I know that, that, that that's not true. Where is the Final Four this year? The Final Four this year is in the lovely burg of East Hartford, Connecticut. Okay. Um, at the University of Connecticut's football stadium. It's the first time uh, since 2002 that the game will not be played uh, in an NFL stadium. Uh, that the championship weekend is moved away for two years. It's basically rotated between Baltimore, Philadelphia, and Foxborough over the last, I guess that would have been 17 years or so, from 2003 to 2019. Uh, And it was going to be in Philadelphia last year uh, before other stuff happened. So it's in East Hartford. These next two seasons, the quarterfinals are supposed to be, you'll you'll like this, the quarterfinals are supposed to be um, the Saturday uh, before Memorial Day weekend at Hofstra, and then Sunday before Memorial Day weekend at Notre Dame Stadium. Oh, that's awesome. So it is, Making there, up is the echoes. there is the potential. And I don't know whether we're going to see some site movement or not. There's, I, I'm speaking not from any sort of actual knowledge, just yeah. sort of the thought that maybe – given the current situation that you might move that to some place that's a little more centrally located. Although if you end up with a set of quarterfinals where Notre Dame's one of the teams involved and Denver is one of the teams involved, well, Notre Dame is a perfectly central location at that. But that was, that was one of the predetermined sites announced, I guess it's been about four years or so ago now uh, was actually in the before times was kind of looking forward to the idea of, hopping on a flight from New York and getting to Chicago and driving over to to Notre Dame for that Sunday quarterfinal just to kind of see what it's like. I've actually never been inside the stadium for a game. Uh, I've walked by it and maybe got about two steps in before somebody chased me away just kind of walking around campus one time. But uh, you got to go. It's great. I'm sure it is. (laughs) I actually haven't been since they've – They've added the Jumbotron and all that stuff. Um, the turf, they have turf now. That was a big Brian Kelly thing. At least that's what the purists that complained about it claimed it was all Brian Kelly's fault. But I'm assuming that that's better for lacrosse as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, you don't see a ton of grass fields anymore 
uh, anywhere in the sport. Um, there's some, but there's not many. I think you see a lot more of the, the field turf that's kind of taken over, much like it has in football in a lot of places as well. Yeah, no, it just it just makes a ton of sense. Yeah, so it it, it is crazy when I was doing a little bit of research about this. It, it was I, – I forget how early baseball, softball, and lacrosse start. I think of them – as not really happening until after the NCAA tournament. And that couldn't be a more inaccurate look at things, right? No, the first division one game this season was played on January 30th. That's crazy to me. I, I just don't think of it as being at, you know, as it happening then. And it totally does, which, which and, blow my and, mind that and, teams and, played and, like and 10 the, games last year. The season has crept up. Like I would say 20 years or so ago, it was not uncommon to see teams open late February, early March. Oh, okay. Um, but over the last over the last twenty years you've seen almost a, a mad scramble to try to get things back start earlier and earlier and earlier. Uh and try to squeeze more games in. And some of that's a function of lacrosse coaches being a little bit like their football brethren and wanting to mm-hmm. have a full uh week to get ready uh for a game uh, and avoid those midweek contests. So they are creatures of habit, and they do not like the, those sort of random Tuesday or Wednesday games that allow a, perhaps a more limited opponent to be fired up, and maybe their guys are not as excited to play. And the next thing you know, you you have yourself a you have yourself a headache. So. Well, Patrick, I know that you are a very busy man this time of year, and I want to thank you for coming on. I probably took too much of your time, but it was hard not to getting the basketball and the lacrosse in. Everyone can follow you at Discourse, and that's Discourse with a one. I will definitely have you back on. I know the Hoyas are an outside shot at being a part of a postseason tournament, but based on all the lacrosse people I'm getting, I think if Georgetown keeps their season up, it'll be great to check in and see where the Hoyas are, and I want to thank you again. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. I'll see you soon.